Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the employer deductible podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 21st, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host, although he's about to be replaced by a block grant. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder, faithful listener, if you have a second, go to iTunes and rate the show, even leave some comments. Uh, please help us out here. Uh, reviews and comments really help to build the show. So this week on Twill, we greet Anne-Marie Marsharilli, Professor of Law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law, where she specializes in healthcare law. Her research interests are in healthcare regulation, finance, and particular interest in healthcare reform. Uh, she had a long career as a health law attorney, uh, including uh, some healthcare antitrust before uh, going into uh, the academic world. In addition to her published uh, scholarship, uh, she writes the always interesting healthcare law blog, Missouri State of Mind. A big welcome to the pod, Emery. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So I thought we might start with uh, something that in a year's time or so we might not be able to discuss, which is Medicaid. You had a really interesting piece in the Journal of Healthcare Law and Policy last year entitled The Medicare Gamble. And I think you, you sort of took the position that the Medicaid expansion, as it was transformed by the Supreme Court, really uh, represented a gamble. Uh, as to whether good things would follow from, you know, the laboratory of states, uh, giving the states the opportunity to individually determine Medicaid expansion and using 1151 waivers, even sort of uh, uh, take some uh, jumps into the future. Uh, so I wondered uh, if you would like to reflect on that piece in today's uh, world. Um, you know, how do you assess the gamble now? And I wonder whether, in fact, uh, the NFIB case, rather than creating the opportunity for a gamble, merely sort of fatally politicized Medicaid expansion, um, leading, to, leading to our current state of affairs. Anyway, unpack what you can for us. Well, I think maybe the second question, if you don't mind, I'll answer first, which is, so did the NFIB decision really, if your expression is right, fatally politicize Medicaid? Well, I think Medicaid has been pretty much fatally politicized for its entire short life. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I like that expression, but I think it, it was not something that was happened at the Supreme court. In fact, I think argued in the paper, well, it's always been extremely political, okay? Um, we have short memories. I guess we're Americans. We're somewhat historic in our outlook, but let's go back and look, okay, at the origins, the deeply political origins of Medicaid. And I thought the gamble wasn't so much of the court's gamble as so much as the uh, Obama administration's gamble that we could still make this work. <laughs> um, and resting so much uh, of making the Affordable Care work on expanding Medicaid, I thought was a tremendous gamble since it has been, was it Linda Johnson who said a poor program for poor people since its very inception? Now, if you want me to go ahead and talk about the, the sort of first question, so how would I assess the gamble? Well, you know, maybe maybe we're throwing the dice again, okay, with all this talk of block granting Medicaid, which I think is serious talk um, and has been serious talk for some time. Um, and it'll be another gamble, which is, so will Medicaid, you said we might be able to talk about it. Well, maybe not Medicaid as we know it, but 
I predict Medicaid will endure, but probably in a very different form and guise, um, maybe a year from now or certainly a few years from now. The early indications are that if Congress does uh, transform Medicaid, uh, there's going to be a, a slow roll-in or perhaps more uh, accurately, a roll-out of the expansion money. So the actual new model, if there is one, uh, we won't see for several years, probably. Certainly, uh, we won't be allowed to see it until after the midterms. Um, but if you do sort of co- uh, uh, look into the crystal ball of a block-granted um, Medicaid, um, how different is that going to be from what perhaps even a non-expansion state would have today? Well, that's a really good question, because often when we discuss block-granting Medicaid, we assume that there's a sort of one-size-fits-all or one-size-fits-none model of block-granting Medicaid. Actually, there have been experiments with under waivers, uh, essentially block granting Medicaid in all different kinds of states uh, earlier, and they've done it different ways. So I love your question. Uh, What will it look like? Well, it kind of depends on whether there's going to be a lot of discretion built into everybody kind of right, what might be the equivalent of their own block grant waiver, you know, under a different name, and will allow you to have your state sort of experiment in your laboratory and and, and see if that works. Rhode Island had a really ambitious, at one point, uh, what I I would call, although I don't think they called it, kind of a, a large Medicaid waiver where they attempted essentially to try and expand coverage by essentially not having coverage be as deep or as rich. So it hasn't always come from a place of, I hate Medicaid. It sometimes come from a place of, I like Medicaid, but I think that the resources could be better allocated. So I don't know how much discretion is going to be allowed there. I could imagine a, pl- a situation where we would block grant Medicaid and then we'd still be back, you know, what's the old joke? 50 different Medicaids. If you know one Medicaid program, you know one Medicaid program. We'd have 50 very different things going on or more than 50 in different jurisdictions, uh, especially in a non-expansion state. I think the biggest change would be that you would see Medicaid dollars come to the state with the, a lot more discretion about how to categorize. Right now, we've had uh, under traditional Medicaid, you know, categorical and financial eligibility, expansion Medicaid, um, the sort of ACA, more generalized, uh, simplified eligibility, but kind of bringing them all under kind of one tent, as it were, one roof, um, and giving the states a lot of discretion to decide, okay, so who among the low income and disabled in your community and various other subpopulations would you like to serve? Um, and I, I would probably see States go in different directions on that. I was uh, watching the confirmation hearings of um, uh, the new um, the CMS administrator, um, and uh, to most of the questions that were posed to her, she responded with some variation of choice: choice for consumers with regard to Medicaid expansion, choice for the states as to what they want to do. And I think that's fine. Intellectually, it's fine. The problem is if the money is very short, if you just don't have the funds, I'm just not entirely convinced that there are real choices and hence, therefore, real experimentation to be had. Well, choice is a funny word, not just in this context, but in other contexts, right? You're right. It's often uh, code or, you know, uh, for, uh, well, we'll just do what we want. Um or we'll do the bare minimum that we have to. But I, I actually saw a little bit of that testimony, probably not as much as you. And I thought, wow, so this really does send a strong signal that everyone should sharpen their pencils and start thinking about their dream about what they'd like to cover in their state. And they're essentially going to be given 
free reign. Um, and so I think the sort of bare bones assumptions of what Medicaid are like will have to look like even at its core, which are pretty bare bones. This might, those might shrink and diminish as well. Um, it is always true that in Medicaid, there is not enough money to do everything that people would like to do. So choice has always been a, a big part of the story. I think it's going to be even bigger. So this brings to mind a couple of themes that I you know, I, I really have enjoyed your articles and your presentations in this area, Emory. And I hope you'll indulge me with a, a somewhat rambling question, but I will. I think it'll get to uh, a sharp point uh, with respect to both your uh, Medicaid gamble piece and your piece uh, on health the 50 flowers bloom, which is to say it seems like that the mantra of flexibility is about ultimately a social minimum, right? Because even though whenever we have diversity of programs, we still have to have some social minimum of what Medicaid stands for, or else we're just not even talking about the same phenomenon. And one of the things I'm wondering about here is it seems that among a lot of health policy, health economist technocrats, there's a certain vogue for saying, well, the cost shift hydraulic doesn't exist. You know, if we were to cut uh, and introduce that concept, sorry to, to keep backing up, the cost shift hydraulic concept is one where if public programs cut back on what they spend, that providers will make that up by charging more to private insurers, right? That's been the theory for a long time that as soon as you cut back Medicare, Medicaid, that'll just be made up by higher rates on everybody else. We don't ultimately save much money there. But what I'm wondering is, is I think, is, is there going to be a point at which the bare bones become so bare bones that even the technocrats that really hate the idea of this cost shift hydraulic are going to have to acknowledge that simply to keep the lights on, hospitals are going to have to make up in what they lose in Medicaid funding by charging more to the privately insured. I certainly do think that there, there for a long time was hidden and then some, some more observable and then ultimately, I think, more fully observable, a whole lot of cost shifting uh, to sort of try and make sense of what we do with Medicaid. Some of it perverse. Okay, I'll go that far. So yes, I do think there's a point at which you can cut things to a point where providers, unless you allow them to engage in this, I, want to, I love this expression, cost shift hydraulic, that in fact, it may not be able for them to accept Medicaid, okay? Because I guess what, uh, forgive me if I'm misinterpreting what you said, but what you're saying is accepting Medicaid makes no sense on a voluntary basis uh, for uh, providers unless we allow them to engage in this. And we could get to a point where it's the imperative. It's not just optional. I think we may be there in some states since Medicaid reimbursement varies tremendously from state to state. We might already be having a natural experiment with that in California where Medicaid reimbursement is what sort of famously or infamously incredibly low, right? The Medi-Cal program is, I often call it the low price leader, okay, on uh, healthcare reimbursement. And it, it's no accident that all of those cases testing standing to challenge uh, reimbursement standards come out of California because of that. Um, and there, you know, the California numbers on likeliness, likelihood of accepting Medicaid assignment are, I think, correlated with the ability to engage in some side of some kind of cost shift with commercial insurance. Um, and that works better in some areas than others. And it might be possible, I've never studied this, to try and track whether that's consistent with low provi Medicaid provider availability in those areas. Um, 
it's such an interesting empirical question. Um, th- that's about all I think I can say. But uh, yeah, I think the jig has been up in California for a while. And I think other states should look at it. What's the old expression? If you can't be a good example, at least be a horrible warning. Like, would you, <laughs> w- yes. would you like to be there? Kind of question, you know? Totally. Well, I was also wondering um, if, just to, to riff a bit further on this idea of the holistic view, one of the presentations you made, Anne-Marie, that I really enjoyed was on um, the perspective of the hospital as a whole in health law. Because I think sometimes, in, you know, as health law matures as a field, we have specialists, right? We have people who are the bioethics specialists, the tax specialists, the antitrust specialists. And what you were sort of urging people to do, I felt, was to say, well, try to see how the system as a whole interacts. And I'm wondering if, you know, in your research or teaching, if you're seeing that sort of holistic approach uh, pay dividends. Well, I'd like to think it does. I mean, when you teach, you have to be careful not to teach it too advanced a level for the students that you attract. A lot of the reason I think a lot about the moving parts, all the different moving parts of the system, I think that comes from practice. So I was a healthcare antitrust attorney for roughly 10 years and practiced health law before that. Once you move away from just looking at, you know, a tiny little, I often describe it, you know, like you learn anatomy, you can learn all about the bones, but you know, when you put it all together and the skeleton's running down the road, then you're really excited, okay? <laughs> and I feel like that's what I try and do by the end of my of my teaching. And I, I think increasingly I want to write that way too. And that's thank you for the compliment. That is why so that presentation was actually part of a book that I'm working on that tries to talk about um the sort of hospital, but in a kind of a I hope a kind of I was originally calling the idea like the postmodern hospital, like in a deeply contemporary way. Okay, I love history, but you know, what is it that we want from hospitals? Do we even want hospitals? Do we even need hospitals? hospitals, okay, uh, where we are right now. And so what is it that we want hospitals to do? And I, I don't think the question goes away if the Affordable Care Act goes away, okay, because healthcare has ineluctably changed. The Affordable Care Act didn't make it happen. It may have accelerated some things, but it doesn't go away. So that, you know, I'm very pleased to, to have a chance to write about it. And I thought the best way into the topic might be to look at some sort of, I think, under-discussed, but I think should be better known, um, things that are happening in the hospital industry. And that's how I got interested and got started. When we've discussed federalism over the last, what, eight years now, um, seven years, um, I guess it's been in the context of a shift in both financing and also in regulation from the states to the federal government. Um, lots of folks have, have done great work. Uh, you've written about federalism, Nikki Huberfeld's work, Abby Glucks, and, and so on. Um, is that now going to be reversed? Um, uh, are we now going to move pretty much everything back to uh, the states with regard to regulation? We've already discussed uh, financing um, uh, Medicaid, or at least the, the, ex- the, the extra parts if states want to, but with regard to regulation. And uh, when I look at that and when I teach that, you were just talking about teaching, uh, I was doing uh, regulation of private health insurance the other night and uh, looking at the states, looking at um, new New York laws, Hawaii laws, uh, other states that are are sort of uh, incorporating things that we have seen in the Affordable Care Act into their own laws. Uh, the the huge specter, of course, the anti-federalism uh, specter that, that hangs over it is ERISA. Uh, and I wonder if you had any thoughts about sort of the next stage of 
healthcare federalism. Well, I, I, I'm glad you brought ERISA up because when you started to talk, I was thinking about ERISA. I was thinking about the reservation to the states under McCarran-Ferguson, okay, of the, you know, regulation of the traditional yeah, business yeah. of health insurance. I, I don't know. You probably had the same experience if you, you know, are a scholar of ERISA. I practiced in that area. Um, is that, you know, when the Affordable Care first passed, the most common little email used to get from people was, did Congress just, you know, uh, repeal ERISA? You know, <laughs> did Congress just repeal McCarran-Ferguson? Because it, it seemed to be part of the zeitgeist of what the Affordable Care Act was about. And yet ERISA was not repealed, right? And McCarran-Ferguson was not repealed. And I think you could probably do a whole talk about how those ended up being two sort of pressure points. Now we have federalism. What's the little joke about federalism? Like you love it, you know, when it's what you want to do experimenting in the States, but you don't love it so much if you don't love the state experimentation. So we can see that same ambivalence, even just in ideas that are being floated in the new administration. I don't hear a hue and cry to repeal ERISA. <laughs> Um, I do hear you and cry to sell health insurance across state lines, which of course has been done uh, or been an option for a considerable period of time so far in the places where it's been an option, like selling across Rhode Island and some other states. Um, <clears throat> there hasn't been a lot of interest from the industry in doing it. But if you were to cut out of whole cloth some kind of exception that allowed health insurance to be sold across state line and allowed um, McCarran-Ferguson to be repealed so that states couldn't set their own, you know, as far as the traditional business, um, you might have a race to the bottom. You might actually have in some ways, um, uh, in some ways I would see that as the opposite of the question. As I've seen a strong centralization, you know, take that away from the states, a race to the bottom, develop very thin policies that um, could be sold across state line, and it would set the new kind of uh, foundation for where uh, a health insurance policy would start from. And that's all from what I would see as a huge assertion of power in the federal arena. But yes, I do think in some areas a, a fair amount of regulatory authority will be pushed back to the states. But remember, there's like, it's always like this, incredibly ambivalent about what the states would do with that power. <laughs> and I do think in some places there's a desire to rein in some of the states. So uh, I think we're going to have a mixed bag on federalism, is my prediction, just as we always have. Um, because um, for all of, I, I try to look at what gets done and I, I listen a little less to what gets said, the rhetoric around it, there is a strong assertion of federal power under things like um, repealing McCarran-Ferguson and asserting that all health insurance firms should be able to sell across state lines. That's that's a pretty strong federal assertion. Yes, that's something that I've been really focusing on and advising my seminar this term in terms of their papers and you know to look at both state options, but to realize that there's going to be a lot of pressure for preemption or for other uh, more federalized approaches. Transitioning on somewhat related lines, um, one of the things that demands, I think, a coordinated response is or are crises like Ebola. Uh, and I saw recently there was someone who was on the National Security Council tweeting about how worried he was about the possibility of a pandemic, uh, like a very highly infectious uh, flu happening during the Trump administration because it seems very disorganized. Um, I saw that you very recently published a piece, Anne-Marie, that was on uh, relating Ebola preparedness to pay-for-performance. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about this P-for-P uh, Ebola connection. Well, I've been interested in healthcare-acquired and healthcare-associated infections for a long time. I think I finally decided to kind of try and put my thoughts together on it when I saw a tweet, <laughs> of all things. I saw a tweet from the Center for Disease Control <laughs> when it became apparent that uh, anybody knows 
anything about international travel knew this was likely, but it became apparent to the American public that it was quite likely that Ebola would reach our shores, okay? And the question would only become, what would happen to it once it arrived? And the tweet said, um, I'm paraphrasing, something like, have no fear, we will use our standard healthcare, you know, acquired and healthcare-associated infection rigor procedures and take care of this. And personally, I, you know, at that point, I wasn't on Twitter, and I don't know, I'm not the, a fan of the snarky Twitter, um, but it, it would have been very tempting to tweet back, yes, that's exactly what terrifies me. And so I thought <laughs> I should write about that. I should say, okay, that's why that strikes fear. And those of us who think hard and, and really think about the data on healthcare-associated infections and how well we are doing it, controlling them in environments like hospitals, clinics, never mind the community. So I thought about other things that we had in common. I, I know this is not a way we usually think about the world, but with parts of Africa and how we reacted, um, uh, by which I mean we have a culture of infectious disease control here that is um, based on a model that is not entirely as rigorous as we would like to think it is. There, there was a culture of uh, a beautiful, elaborate culture around the handling of bodies, around death, and both societies allowed the culture of how it is that you interact in certain situations to override the best advice of science and kind of reap the whirlwind, okay? Uh, a significant part of the problem um, with Ebola in Africa was that it was very hard to get people to detach from traditional symbolic uh, burial practices and funeral practices that involve the handling of dead bodies. Okay. And turns out it was very, very hard to get <laughs> in the healthcare context, uh, not only facilities, but clinics and all to want to screen in a way that we had built in, baked into the sort of healthcare culture in the United States. Uh, don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to know if you have a highly infectious disease because the old, I don't really have a lot I can do about it kind of thing. Okay. Um, only it got riskier when the stakes got higher and the disease became even riskier to spread. But I think it's how we got to a situation where even though the nation was supposedly on extremely high alert, we weren't actively screening people who would travel in Africa who showed up with symptoms in emergency rooms. Okay. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we may have had more in common. Um, our resistance to putting out truthful data, accurate data, all kinds of things, ways that you wouldn't think that uh, we would parallel the way uh, an epidemic unfolded elsewhere that, that actually did. So I thought, well, that, that's a, a way into talking about what are we doing about things besides, uh, Ebola? What are, what, you know, what are we doing about C. diff and staff and how are we doing? And it's not, all, there's been improvement, but it's not entirely a rosy picture. Okay. <laughs> uh, because the improvement has been, although you can smooth it out when you look at aggregated data, it, it's, it's really been driven by in certain places, certain projects, certain programs. It's not entirely consistent across uh, the healthcare system. We are still very much of a, I don't want to know, or I call it the don't ask, don't tell of uh, healthcare associated infections. And hence the really plethora of uh, incentives built into various kinds of healthcare reimbursement reform to try and both out the data and then try and out the um, efforts to uh, improve uh, initial infection, but then transmission. I mentioned at the top of the show your great blog, Missouri State of Mind. Uh, I've been doing that for, what, three or four years now, I think? I started when I moved to the University of Missouri at Kansas City. I just thought, well, that's a good launching pad. Uh, so four and a half years? Yeah. No, it gives it's, me it's a great. Place. It gives me a place to put yeah. uh, small items or things I'm working on. or uh, it, it just It's wonderful. I, I'm amazed how many people find me through this, what I call my sort of dilatory 
Conservatory blog. There you go. So I was looking at it the other day, and I saw that you discussed the Third Circuit decision in King Drug. And as someone who's never fully understood the activist opinion and everything that went with that, I would love you to do a quick a quick summary for me. The interesting thing about King Drug is that we're still struggling with, what is this, can I say, uneasy or sometimes easy, okay, relationship between patent law, protection of intellectual property, and, um, you know, pharmaceutical development, right? And our desire to have free and open competition. Uh, one of the most desirable benefits of that is that you have a robust marketplace uh, with, with as many entrances can possibly be in there. And therefore, uh, you know, and the data tells us, although it's not immediate in pharmaceuticals, but eventually it's kind of a rockets and feathers kind of thing, but eventually uh, better prices to the consumer. So we have an ever-ending series of cases that want to test just what the perimeters of Actavis were or are. So maybe it's good to say, so the big takeaway I think you could say from Actavis is that, you know, nobody won. <laughs> okay. As so often in healthcare and trust, nobody got to say authoritatively that uh, when there's a pay to delay or pay to go away, okay, exchange, no one can say for sure whether or not that you know, offends um, antitrust law. And in some ways, uh, you could say that's a good ruling. In some ways, you could say that's a terrible ruling. It's not the bright line that industry needs because it, like so much of antitrust, ends up then being very fact-specific. But what's important to know is that the sides were highly polarized, okay? So it was Solomonic in the sense of there was the huge push to say, no, they may never do this. It's, in, you know, inherently anti-competitive, okay? A sort of a per se violation of federal antitrust law. And the other side was, no, you should create uh, the presumption that this is entirely pro-competitive. So I, I love antitrust law partly because it's possible to look at the same conduct and characterize it in such two incredibly disparate ways. If you look at Octavius, you can kind of see, okay, so it's a, a more of a Solomonic uh, decision in that it says, well, depends on the facts. And so, of course, that breeds the progeny. And one of the progeny is King Drug, where people struggle with, okay, if you said that sometimes you can't <laughs> pay a competitor to go away, did you mean just money? Or did you mean other things of value can be exchanged, right? And so you end up deep in the terms of the deal. And it turns out that, uh, at least in that case, the, the court said, no, depends on things of value being exchanged. The point is, what is the purpose of the exchange of the valuable item or items? In that case, wasn't it a drug license? Um, we weren't trying to make a point about it has to be money, okay? Because actually, anybody who studies these uh, pay-to-delay or pay-to-go-away uh, arrangements, they're actually quite complex, often multi-level, often don't involve the, transfer, the direct transfer of money. Um, so I, I thought, well, that's interesting. It's, it's worth reporting. I'm not sure too many people intuitively think, okay, you can't monetize a drug license, you know, what kind of argument. But if you spend enough time in antitrust law, you begin to realize, oh, they're really trying to test the four corners of this opinion because they're trying to figure out if the court didn't give a really bright line, like they're trying to make a bright line or define a bright line for themselves. So I expect more litigation, actually, testing the four corners of activists. I think it's inevitable. Yes, I could completely see that. It seems like it's really a, uh, a goldmine for uh, antitrust attorneys in many ways because of the uh, lack of clarity and some of the other issues involved. So, Andrea, I think we're running short on time presently, but I wanted to be sure uh, if we could get in 
a story that you told at Prof's blog where uh, you've done some really interesting posts. And this one was on your uh, traveling abroad and on the question of finding an inhaler. And I was wondering if you could just sort of discuss, you know, the, the problem there and maybe lessons it holds for comparative health law and health policy. Well, so I was in the Azores, uh, a chain of islands uh, off the coast of uh, Portugal. Uh, and I was on the island of San Miguel, which is the capital. And, and listeners interested, I'm partly Portuguese. Indeed, I'm Madeiran. And I went on to Madeira after that. But uh, I, as I said in the blog post, I pulled out my rescue inhaler because I was going to get on an airplane. I don't use my rescue inhaler for asthma very often. But air quality is very low on airplanes, particularly in countries where people can smoke. They can no longer smoke on the plane, but they smoke just before they come on. So, you're, you know, it, it can be a bad situation. And I checked to see if it was okay. Uh, and it, it had uh, still had, uh, my meter showed that there were all kinds of doses left, but it was no longer functioning. I had damaged it in some way. Um, so those of you who travel uh, or who study comparative things know that very often items can be prescribed by a, a, a licensed pharmacist that cannot be prescribed by a licensed pharmacist here in the United States. So I thought I would make a try. I went down, bad Portuguese, and he had somewhat better English. And so I wanted to recount the encounter where it was a speedy and dignified opportunity for me to get a new rescue inhaler, but not before he questioned me and had enough Portuguese to have had this conversation about what are you doing with your rescue inhaler in a red case? Because only in the United States would people be so crazy as to put a rescue inhaler in a red case that they know it's supposed to be in a blue case. That's the universal symbol of rescue. And, and then also um, charging me essentially a pittance for it, okay, providing it promptly and charging me a pittance. And it made me think about, so how prevalent is this practice of something like an asthma rescue inhaler, really something every diagnosed asthmatic should have, okay, in their custody? Uh, how, how prevalent is this practice of being able to get it from a pharmacist? So then I just kind of did my little tour of the world and turned out these are called blue puffers or blue inhalers almost everywhere. That um, they're typically available through a pharmacist or even some places over the counter, uh, and and at, and at the price roughly, I paid less than what would have been at the rate of exchange. I paid about three dollars seventy five cents um, <laughs> for it, and they did compare that to the cost that I pay at home, r- roughly ten times that. Um, so I, I, I've written before about asthma inhalers because I'm interested in how we design them, how we tell people you're supposed to have one, but we don't necessarily make it easy for have to have one. Um, and I, I guess that's why I wrote, a, I wanted to write about it. I hope I didn't freak people out by using my example from out in an archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic, but it was as good as any. No, I thought it was a fantastic example. There were so many lessons to be learned. And I've for a long time been trying to get the paradigm of U.S. health law and policy away from an analysis based on the sense that the U.S. healthcare system is a defective deviation from a perfect neoclassical market to an awareness that, you know, globally, we're really strange, right? Maybe the deviation is not from the market. Maybe our deviation is from uh, global standards of health access and equity, and perhaps, you know, even as uh, exemplified with your blue inhaler. Well, I think so. I think the uh, pharmacist was genuinely concerned that an asthmatic, doesn't matter whether she was from the planet Mars, okay, walked through the door and did not have an operating rescue inhaler. Why? Because his instincts were trained that way, right? Here would be more like uh, our first concern would, we'd be concerned about the person, but we'd be like, do you have insurance? 
do you have script? You know, do you? Yes. You know, and he didn't want me to die, yeah. okay, yeah. on his porch, okay? That's what he didn't want, or on the airplane, you know, leaving. And so, yeah, I sometimes think we, because it doesn't make us very comfortable, okay, don't talk about, you know, the orientation of the system there can be quite different as well. He was genuinely concerned, okay, that I had, like, even just been walking around with this, all right, not working. I mean, I didn't realize it, but, you know, he was like, how long has this been broken, you know? <laughs> Like I had been derelict in my own duty of self-care. We don't even talk that way, okay? Um, so yeah, I think it's helpful. I also remember I was putting this on Prof's blog, which is a general interest blog, and I think sometimes people outside of healthcare, you know, circles, uh, need even more to hear. Listen, it's organized differently elsewhere. Let me tell you how it's organized. Whether you like it or not, this is how it's organized. And I learned a fair amount actually in going and kind of opening up. There's a part in the blog post, not a long part, where I talk about how Portugal eventually had to bring its uh, acquisition cost and then ultimately its cost to consumer pharmaceuticals in line with the rest of the EU, like even as kind of a meditation on what does it mean to be part of the EU to have to get in line with their form of reference pricing. Um, and I, I have a paper forthcoming in um, the American Journal of Law and Medicine on pharmaceutical pricing. And I, uh, some of this, was, I guess I was just really activated thinking about it because of working on that paper. But I thought the blue inhaler was just a, a good way to talk to people who, who may not dabble in health law. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Marsha Relay uh, for being on the pod. Anne-Marie, great fun. Thank you. Thank you both so much. And please go and read her blog. We'll put a link in the show notes. And those show notes, of course, we post at twill.com. On Twitter, apparently where Anne-Marie does not go, I am at <laughs> Nicholas Terry. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale. Thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week. And don't forget, you're blue or red in Halos. Hey,